What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and all of the above podcast extra. As you know, we drop these in between our full episodes. These are passing periods where it's just Jeff and myself, Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, uh, catching up on stories and education that perhaps we didn't talk about in our most recent full episode. And our, our upcoming full episodes are going to be extremely dope. I don't want to tell you who we got because, you know, things happen and internet connection drops and, and things get rescheduled. But just know we have dope folks lined up. To get us started with a humanizing and healing and joyful fall semester for everybody out there. And uh, speaking of fall semester, Jeff, uh, everybody's in session now. I saw that New York City schools and areas around the East Coast went back to school this this uh, most recent week. So now we are officially fully all up in there. And I saw a lot of stories about AC not working and things being really hot and muggy along the East Coast. So shout out to all the educators out there in those um, older buildings that don't have AC or don't have working AC and are just now stepping into the world that a lot of us been dealing with for the last three or four weeks uh, since school started. So shout out to all of y'all. We hope everybody had a fantastic week and a fantastic first week of school. If you are one of those folks who just went back to school, Jeff, it is um, it's hot out there in the Los Angeles area. It's going to be a, 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 a crisp 100 degrees in the part of LA that I live in. How are you doing on this very sunny and hot September weekend? You know, I'm doing great, Manuel, I have to say. Doing doing uh, quite wonderful. I am now currently checking the weather because we... So for folks who don't live in Southern California, uh, you probably look at us as like ridiculous snowflakes who can't take changes in weather. And you're mostly correct. Mostly that's, that's correct. Fair. That's that fair. Is, that's quite fair. <laughs> quite valid. And, and there is one wrinkle to the climate in this part of the world is that there's a lot of little microclimates in L.A. So, um, for example, it's not unusual that the the, you know, whatever, let's say Manuel and I are like. 35 miles away from each other. Uh, and, you know, it's probably going to be like 10 degrees warmer where Manuel is, especially, you know, uh, during the day, but, but fairly consistently uh, for a lot of the yep. year, it's going to be 10, maybe even 15 degrees warmer where he is compared to where I am. And where I am is going to be five to 10 degrees warmer than the people five miles away right at the beach. Right. And so, so there are some, you know, reasons for us to to have to pay attention to the weather, because if you're traveling across the city and you walk out your front door and it's like a little cloudy and you need a sweatshirt and then you drive up to where Manuel is and it's 100 degrees, you know, yeah. like you need to be you need to be prepared for these things. Um, but all that to say, in my neck of the woods, Manuel, it's going to be an absolutely flawless 93 and sunny today, and I cannot wait to do my all-time favorite weekend and act activity in L.A., which is to bust out my little lounge chair in the backyard and take a nap in the sun, which I plan on doing today, Manuel, and I'm nice. not going to let any anything stop me. <laughs> well, it's going down. I love that. I love that for you. Um, I will not be napping in the sun out here um under this 100 degree weather also like the area that i live in over the last i would say eight years each year has gotten progressively worse with these daytime mosquitoes these little joints that never were here like when i first moved into mm. to uh my house here 
we had no mosquitoes like at all. And then a couple summers in, we started having these little, little tiny, tiny joints that like to bite in the middle of the day and especially your legs like they stay pretty low to the ground and each summer has gotten progressively worse and now like the thought of me laying out there during the day to catch a nap yeah forget about it man i would get i would get bit up by all these mosquitoes climate change man i I guess they're invasive i guess they came up from um hotter drier regions down south and they've come up here because climate change is basically throwing everything off so congrats to you to not having that problem currently it sounds like so yeah. Yeah, currently no no major issue with mosquitoes. I did have some uh intense flies earlier this year, but mm. I don't know if that was an aberration or if that's just how it is every year since this was my first go round with the house, but um, right. but we but we will see. Hey, one other quick thing, Manuel. I yep. um you acknowledged the first day of school in, you know, the sort of northern and eastern parts of the country where it's, you know, that post Labor Day start. We also, I feel like we're in that generation where there's a wave of us that had kids when we were younger, like in our, you know, 20s, mid 20s, let's say. And those folks have high schoolers and college students as, you know, as kids, right? Yeah. And then there's that later wave. And we have another wave of peers who have like kindergartners and early elementary kids now. And some have both, you know, obviously, but like, um, I did just the other day briefly reconnect with one of our uh, former friends. I guess I shouldn't say former friends, current <laughs> friends, but what happened? But uh, a, a friend of ours from school who you know we used to live much closer to. Uh, I'll just say her name is Kristen, who is a yeah. principal out in uh, New York City and has a kindergartner. Uh, a brand new kindergartner, Elliot, uh, who had his first two days of kindergarten uh, this week in Brooklyn. Aww. Yeah, super cute. I'll, I'll show you the picture she sent me. But, uh, the, so in New York, typically they start school the Thursday at, or kids start school the Thursday after Labor Day. So they just get like a two day week and then a weekend, which is kind of dope. But also, um, I'm, I'm happy to report that Elliot did well. Uh, he, you know, stayed out of trouble for two days, apparently. So, nice. uh, all, all is well, uh, on that front. So shout out to, uh, to Kristen and little Elliot for triumphing on the first, uh, couple of days, um, of kindergarten. Oh, he, he made friends and including another kid named Elliot. So awesome. sh- shout out to both Elliot's in kindergarten in Brooklyn. Awesome. <laughs> That's super cool. Super cool. Yeah. Um, well, no, no, nothing new to report here on my end of things as far as uh, how my week went as a teacher, because we just we had our fourth week. So it feels like feels like we've been back in school for forever. Like summer feels like a long, long time ago, aside from the heat still being here. But I did, um, Jeff, I, I did have the thought that at some point on the show, you know, there's the so-called reading wars happening across the country, and you know a lot of stuff, uh, a, a lot of a lot of a lot of battles um, around how uh, what the appropriate approach is for for literacy and for how to teach kids to read. And and without getting too much into that, Jeff, I, I did have the thought that at some point we need to discuss the I think record low levels of literacy when it comes to knowing how to read a clock because my high schoolers, <laughs> you know, our high school buildings have, you know, analog clocks, the same old ones that have been around forever. And aside from the fact that the clocks in most of our rooms on my campus never seem to work 
right? Um, I, I had my own analog clock that I put up just to make sure there was always a working clock. And year by year, more and more students have expressed to me an inability to tell time on that clock. Cause they'll be like, Rustin, what time is it? And I'll be like, the clock's right there. And they're like, yeah, I see that. What time is it? And especially this year where I have um, most of my students not on their cell phones and I try to try, I like, I like really try to limit their time on Chromebooks and on screens just because they get a lot of that with, with all their eight classes that they have. So when we're not on Chromebooks and without them being able to look at their phones, a lot of students on our block schedule where they're with me for an hour and a half, almost a lot of students start to you know, stress a little bit about what time is it and, and, you know, just, you know, trying to make sense of, of how much time they have left and, and what have you. So I bought a digital clock for my classroom. I went on Amazon after our first payday and bought a big old digital clock just for them because I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Jeff, but I have tried, tried to teach teenagers how to read an analog clock. For those who don't like it, a lot of them do know how to read it, you know, but there is a growing population of students who who lack the skills to read an analog clock and trying to teach them. It's a lot more frustrating than you would think it would than you you know would expect it to be um, extremely frustrating. And I gave up. So I bought a digital clock, Jeff. And at some point we need to discuss the record low levels of clock literacy across this country because these young people have been, you know, staring at phones for their entire lives and have never had to actually consider the hands of a clock. Maybe they learned it when they were, you know, whatever grade, kindergarten, first grade. I don't know when that's taught, but they don't remember it because they never had to actually apply it. And then we can follow up that episode with the lack of um, penmanship, especially in cursive writing, Jeff. Um, we're mm. losing, we're losing mm. the art of reading a clock and writing in cursive. Those things are, they're disappearing, Jeff. I don't know yeah, what to make see, of that. I didn't. I didn't know we were going to go here today, Manuel. But I'm controversy, ready. I very, Jeff. Controversy. Very strong feelings about these about these two questions with different answers. So first of all, cursive can die. Cursive is trash. I'm it, with you on that. Like it can die, right? Like almost all the text that we engage with is print. First of all, so. It makes much more sense for our handwritten text to align to the text that students engage with and humans in our, you know, wealthy parts of the world engage with almost everywhere, right? Um, cursive is a, was probably great in the 17th century. It was trash in the 80s. Uh, it's hard to read for no reason. Like, Print is a superior technology. So <laughs> down with cursive would be my vote. And analog clocks are still a both helpful, useful, and common technology. And absolutely, we should continue to teach kids how to be literate with analog clocks. So I have uh, I have different feelings about those. Happy that we have ab uh, abandoned the waste of time that is cursive uh, for young people and not so happy that they can't read analog clocks. Yeah, I don't remember how to write cursive. I definitely remember that I used to know how to write cursive. But in thinking about writing cursive, my 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 memories go immediately go back to that that paper, that like giant like kind of grayish paper that would have uh -huh. the solid lines with the dashed line in between. <laughs> with the dashed line. And trying to erase something on that paper, like trying oh, to erase God. a mistake and it oh 
that paper was awful, Jeff. You couldn't Terrible. erase nothing and like do a clean erase without tearing the paper or just smudging everything. Terrible, terrible paper. Uh, maybe that's why cursive died. Actually, forget you know digital technology. Maybe cursive died because people were too tired of using that trash ass paper that they would use to try yeah. to teach us cursive. So, listen, yeah. cursive is garbage. It just is, man. There's whole letters in cursive that have no reason to be what they are. <laughs> that's right. Facts. Like like that's a capital facts. G or or a Z. Why do those letters look the way they, I'm sure, you yeah. know, that like the linguists out there would be like, well, because in blah, 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 like, I'm sure there's a good answer and it's probably historically interesting and it's utterly stupid and irrelevant in today's world <laughs> down with cursive. Like the only reason to know cursive is so you can actually read primary source historical materials, which, you know, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm here for that argument, but that's like the best argument I think there is the rest of yeah. them just like, cause we did when we were young i'm like yeah we did all kinds of dumb stuff when we were young like learning cursive utter waste of time <laughs> like yeah. makes literacy harder why do we need to present more challenges to ourselves with literacy hey folks we only hit you with the hard-hitting questions and the hot takes here on all of the above um so yeah yeah let us and know i what would you just think. like to say that uh english teachers of the world you can submit all complaints to um uh, at Rustin 3000 uh, on um, the artist formerly known as Twitter. He would be happy to uh, to respond to you in the DMs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the DMs that I've not checked <laughs> in months. I'm trying so hard to just stay away from whatever that platform is called nowadays. But, um, but I do want to shout out, you know, I didn't realize, well, I kind of realized, but I never actually looked into it. Um, when we do post these episodes, whether it be, you know, if, we, if it's a video episode and we post it, if you happen to use the Spotify app, you could see the video in the app. Um, and it, so I knew that, but uh, I guess the Spotify app also has like a little Q&A section. So, you know, I got a notification a couple of days ago about somebody leaving a, a comment under one of our passing periods. So I went to, to check it out. And, um, you know, I just want to shout out, it doesn't, the person's name is a rep show host. So I don't know. I don't know who, that person is but uh rep show host shout out to you uh left a comment under our conversation about jeff when we we're talking about the principal autonomy and like conditions for success for you know starting out the school year especially and we we're talking about how many uh how many teachers don't really have the time to to set up their classrooms because they got to go to meaningless pd or pd that doesn't seem very effective or timely or what have you and and we mentioned like teachers need more time. And I think I made the comparison to, to football and like in the NFL, they get OTAs, they get training camp, they get preseason, they get all this time to get ready for, uh, for a season. And teachers get like one or two days to do all of the things. And then boom, it's a school year and you got all these students and you got to. So anyways, uh, rep show host mentioned, um, that, you know, he was uh, appreciating those connections. And, uh, he said, would love to would love to have that time uh, to know more about the students who are coming in. I think that's especially important at the elementary grades and elementary levels, but, you know, even high school for sure. So, you know, shout out if you are listening on Spotify, I think you could scroll under the episode or something and it'll be like, you know, what do you think about this episode or something like that? So that's another place to leave comments, especially since yours truly is trying to stay away from the uh, Twitter space or whatever it is called, the X space and all that. But Jeff. We are not here to talk about clocks or cursive or Twitter. We are here to talk about, um, well, headlines in education, including an update 
on a story that we discussed last week relative to ethnic studies and our state leadership's really um, weak and problematic letter, as we uh, read it, related to support for ethnic studies. So, Jeff, there's been a kind of sizable update to that story uh, from my view of it. So let's start with um, with getting back to that. So uh, just a reminder for folks who maybe didn't listen uh, last weekend's passing period, the governor of California, um, he didn't author the letter. I think it was uh, Brooks Allen, who's a uh, um, oversees the State Board of Education. But, you know, on behalf of the governor, um, authored a letter in the wake of the the murder of a small business owner who was killed for flying a pride flag outside their uh, outside their business and um this lady was murdered and this letter came out in the the weeks following that to say that ethnic studies is a more or less wonderful opportunity to address hate and bigotry and help students see themselves in the curriculum and you know basically um address that the levels of of hate and, and prejudice and all that stuff that are clearly out there across the state but that letter itself had just like a little bit about the promise of ethnic studies and a whole lot about making sure teachers adhere to um, non-biased curriculum that is free of bigotry, this and that. And it really read like a stern warning to stay within the limits of what California wants you to stay within uh, with regards to ethnic studies. And, you know, go back and check that episode out if you missed it. Uh, the link to the letters under that episode. Maybe we could throw it under this one too, if we remember. But, um, but yeah, Jeff, some ethnic studies folks, they came out in response to that letter. You and I d were not feeling good about that letter, and it turns out we were right to not feel good about it because the uh, ethnic studies professionals out there um, who've been doing this work for so long at the university level, they too had a problem with that letter. So, Jeff, uh, talk to us, man. What's 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 the what what was their view of that letter from the state's leadership? Yeah, yeah. So. On September 8th, which as we record this episode, it's September 9th. So yesterday, uh, Friday, September 8th, this letter from the ethnic study, the University of California Ethnic Studies Faculty Council, which is a professional organization of ethnic studies professors across the UC system for folks outside of California. There are 10 UC uh, campuses across the state. You probably heard of a lot of them like UCLA and UC Berkeley and that sort of thing. So they, put out what I have to say, Manuel, I think is a, my reaction was like, this is a brilliant letter. I think it really, uh, of course, much more articulately and skillfully uh, names some of the concerns that we were surfacing in our initial reactions to the letter from the California State Board of Ed as, you know, as per the Governor Newsom administration uh, from a couple of weeks ago that, that was dated August 23rd. And this letter just like artfully and succinctly and powerfully, I think, breaks down what is happening with um, the governor's, you know, sort of veiled attempts to put up, quote, guardrails uh, around ethnic studies that are anything but guardrails in the sense that guardrails on roads are meant to keep you on track and protect you from, you know, falling over the edge <laughs> and dying, right? Important and point, these, yes. Yeah, these guardrails are meant to structurally weaken and open up intrusions into ethnic studies curriculum 
that that is placating to certain audiences and or like laying some almost procedural groundwork for future and continued attacks uh, on ethnic studies and, and the integrity and purpose of ethnic studies. So just to run down this letter, and again, as Manuel said, we'll have the link below uh, in, in the text below this episode. But uh, it starts with just sort of a, a like right out the box breakdown of their concerns and, um, you know, the, the sort of description of ethnic studies as a 60 plus year old scholarly project to analyze, confront and intellectually dismantle the historical and institutionalized forms of racism, apartheid, settler, settler colonialism and empire in and beyond the United States. Right. No ambiguity there. And what's most striking (laughs) about that language is that nowhere in the, you know, in the governor's uh, in the administration's letter, do you see that kind of language? Right. What you see from them is like, oh, ethnic studies is like about black people and Native American people and Latinx people and Asian people. And like everyone should see themselves in the curriculum. Right. Which which intentionally, I'm sure. It's meant to read like a, we'll have, you know, a multiculturalism course where one day we have egg rolls and one day we have rice and beans and one day we have, you know, whatever, like token representations. And not this is not to say that, you know, sharing foods of cultures around the world is a bad thing, but it's to say that's a very different thing than, than challenging the, you know, the history of institutionalized forms of racism, apartheid, et cetera. Right. So. They go on to, you know, essentially analyze the extent to which this letter uh, is both a sort of veiled attempt to protect ethnic studies, but then also attacks ethnic studies. Right. And talks about, you know, there's publishers out there that are, um, you know, that that are publishing curriculum that's not in line with the state. Uh, with the state expectations, except doesn't actually say anything about what those curriculum publishers are, leaving open the door for the fact that this could be, you know, righteous ethnic study practitioners who are going to be challenged by right wing fanatics in our country, um, as opposed to protecting the integrity of ethnic studies, uh, you know, from these right-wing conservative intrusions that want to turn it into a pro-Eurocentric, you know, sort of pro-Manifest Destiny colonial project type of course. Um, And so... Excellent, uh, excellent point there. They also, in this letter, I think Manuel do a great job of highlighting the, um, the extent to which the, uh, kind of pro-Israel, anti-Arab, um, activism that's happening around the ethnic studies debate in California is, uh, is like, winning, right? Or is getting some footholds with, uh, with these types of statements, right? So the, the letter states, for example, while laudable in its aim, um, the guardrails that have been put up have been weaponized by pro-Israel groups to enact anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian censorship. By restricting the teaching of material, re- material related to ethnic studies, these guardrails mirror conservative efforts in states such as Texas and Florida to suppress hard truths about racism and colonialism. In a very real sense, the guardrails are themselves a form of bias, bigotry, and discrimination. So, um, uh, to me, that was, that was a, an, a really important point because you had mentioned this. I can't remember if it was on the show or if it was just in our conversations last, last week. 
but I hadn't really been, you know, in the weeds on the extent to which these, you know, sort of really right wing pro Israel groups were were working hard to to support this. I had been paying more attention to the kind of Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, and I don't know how to say that, but you know, there's <laughs> DeSantis types out there, right? That are that are more on the purely white supremacist American focused tip, and less on the like Zionist colonial project in Israel tip. And so, I think them connecting the dots on this was was really powerful. So. You know, this this was a powerful letter. We will link it below. I think, you know, my hope would be, even though I have zero confidence in this, that the governor and the, you know, the administration would revisit what they said and and um, and either clarify some of their statements in the way that this letter suggests or make different statements that actually affirm the purpose and the intention of ethnic studies, not as I think as they called it like a course in in ethnicity studies, like what are the different ethnicities, but a course that is about challenging the history of structural oppression um, through the lens of of looking at how these systems of oppression around race and class and you know and uh, immigration status and other sorts of things um, you know play out in our in our country's history and and inform the systems and structures that are inequitable and oppressive still today that we are grappling with uh, and so. It was a powerful piece. You should definitely take a moment and and read it yourself, folks. But Manuel, you as someone who is like very deeply in this issue, much, much more expert than me in many ways. Um, I would love to hear your take on this letter. Yeah, I really love this letter. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I'm a little proud of, of you and I, Jeff, because when we were talking about the governor's letter last week and we were looking at it and sort of like realizing just how problematic it was and just the more we thought about it and critiqued it the deeper it went with we're like wait this is actually this isn't just a weak letter this is like a trash letter and this is actually a letter that's going to do more harm than good so uh seeing the uh uc ethnic studies faculty council response um is very affirming to to me and to to the discussion we had last week in terms of like okay you and i weren't like weren't wrong. Like we, we saw it, we weren't off base. Cause a lot of times, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm working with teenagers all day and I'm not in the, you know, these faculty conversations around ethnic studies, um, that are taking place across the school systems and stuff. So a lot of times I'm like, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm able to keep up and, and have a, accurate eye to, you know, ongoing statewide developments, especially since I'm not at the uh, IQC anymore. So seeing their response, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is basically exactly what you and I were saying, except, you know, much more articulate and and powerful, really, in the way they like really come out the state and really lay out. You know, words words mean things, and that ancient African American proverb, "Say it with your chest." Like they are saying it with their chest, and the state is not. The state is purposely waffling, being vague, talking about don't use old versions of the curriculum, but they're not saying why. They're not saying which parts of the old versions because the existing ethnic studies model curriculum, a lot of it was in, you know, the first and in the early versions. It wasn't, you know, those early versions. It's not like every single word was deleted and it was started from scratch. Like there's a lot of overlap, especially like in terms of general ideas and approaches and stuff. So it's like, okay, so don't use the old versions, but like why? Which which parts in the state doesn't come out and say that? So I love that this letter is 
ends with this bold, like literally in bold um, statement that is calling on the state to, quote, clearly state what topics and curriculum are being banned and how these bans are not violations of teachers and students' First Amendment rights, academic freedom, and equal access to an education and curriculum that reflects their lives and histories. So in other words, if you're saying we got to stay within these uh, so-called guardrails, what's on the other side of these guardrails? Say it clearly. Don't just say, well, you know, the the, the language of the, the state's letter last week, which was talking about like being free from bias and bigotry and this and that. Like, yeah, that's great. And to your point, Jeff, that's exactly the type of language that you see in these anti-truth laws in other states. They all say like, oh, okay, this stuff needs to be not racist and not take sides and not be biased. And that's like uh, um, fuel for, for groups to be out there and say like, oh, it said not to be biased, but you're over here teaching about how uh, white people enslave black people. That sounds biased. That's anti-white. So it's fuel for those type of groups. So I love that this letter from the UC Ethics Studies Faculty Council was saying like, say it with your chest. Which parts of the curriculum are you saying that uh, districts need to stay away from? Why are you saying there's vendors out there selling stuff or offering stuff that's not within these guardrails? What is the stuff in those vendor materials? Like, just be clear about it, because as we know, and as this letter uh, lays out, it's largely about um, Israel Palestine. It's not so much the DeSantian stuff, but the, you know, my memory of those years uh, at the Instructional Quality Commission when that the studies model curriculum was um, being developed and then being hotly debated and contested and, and, and heavily changed and then eventually approved. My memory, my recollection is the pushback after the first version, after the first draft was almost entirely about Israel and Palestine. It wasn't until a few years into the process that we started to see the anti-CRT anti stuff pop up. Like anybody could go to those public records and look at the public comments and see that like CRT wasn't mentioned, Black Lives Matter, that wasn't really mentioned in the early uh, critiques of the curriculum. That came later. So it's almost like the, the Israel-Palestine part was the, the focus at first and clogged up the whole process. And in time, that right-wing very uh, DeSantian, or at the time, Trumpian um, aspect developed over time and then kind of came in and was like the final, final bit. So it all gets mucked up and muddied. And apologies to anybody who's listening who's like just thoroughly confused because this is like really murky and kind of complex political territory. And damn it, we just want to be able to teach ethnic studies. We just want to be able to teach students um, the the vivid memories and recollections and histories of various communities of their own communities for sure and help students be able to interrogate race and oppression and, and structural violence and um, all of the things that have made it such a struggle for folks in our nation. We just want to be able to teach that. And I, as a student, when I was, you know, in high school and, and before, I just wanted to be able to learn that type of stuff. And I wasn't able to learn any of that in, in the schools that I was attending. It wasn't until college. So like, this murky political territory, it's really sad to see in California because you would expect, well, as, as blustery as the governor and other state leaders are with regards to like, you know, California is not like Florida. We, we don't go for that here. Uh, you kind of do. You kind of do by looking at your words. You just do it differently. Um, but you're still on that like, let's stay non-controversial type of tip. And that's not helpful at all. So I hope we get a response to this letter from the 
UC Ethnic Studies Faculty Council. I hope we get a response from the state because we need it. When I say we, I mean teachers out there, K-12 teachers who are teaching ethnic studies or um, trying to get their district to finally really develop their ethnic studies uh classes and content really need some backing from the state to be able to like take to the school boards and take to the district administrators and say like look the state is saying we really got to get on this and we're waffling here like we really got to do it but right now it's like the state's basically telling folks like eh ethnic studies like yeah see themselves in the curriculum vague general vagaries waffling and that's just makes it so easy for folks who are not um, supportive of ethnic studies. It just makes it so easy for them to encroach and clog up the, the progress and the growth and to, uh, get some classes out there that aren't quite ethnic studies at all. So, man, we need, we need some firm, we need the state to say it with its chest, man. Like, do you believe in this ethnic studies or not? Yeah, we do. We absolutely do, man. Well, I, now I'm, I am skeptical. That uh, we'll get oh, anything uh, from, <laughs> from yeah, I don't think the they good will. liberals in in charge of this state uh, whatsoever. But I I don't think your charge uh, to them is is wrong. Um, you know there is a uh, what's what's interesting about the letter from the governor's administration, right from the state board of Ed, to me, Manuel, is there's even short of like there's four simple. Uh, statements in the ethnic studies. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I'm messing up the name. The UC Ethnic Studies Faculty Council letter um, has four simple statements, right? Which which basically are like, here's what y'all need to stand behind, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they could just copy and paste, right? Uh, and revise the le- the letter that they put out largely. Um, yeah. And there's even a milk toast liberal version of it that they could have done that at least I would have been like, okay, I can, you know, I can, I can just like live with that. You know what I mean? Like they, they could have just said something to the effect of like ethnic studies, um, is the, the very first recommendation that the professors offer, right? Ethnic studies is a scholarly project that researches power by centering the lived experiences of oppressed, racialized people of color and indigenous people. They could have said something like that, you know? They, uh, they could have even said a milk toast version of that, man. That's just like ethnic studies, you know, it like is a course that's about examining, you know, a history of unfairness in America, <laughs> you know, or like they're going to even just go on something like that to be like, this is what we are doing with this course. We're not doing, you know, this, this white supremacist version of it. That's not what it's about. You can do that at home with your kids. If you so choose, it's a free world, it's a free country, but that ain't what we're doing in this course. Um, and they they have thus far not chosen to do so. They have chosen to go with only the most, um, you know, sort of uh, just blah, vanilla language that I think it is only prudent for us to see as an opening of the door for radical conservative uh, you know, folks to to step into that space and do exactly in California what they are doing in many other states around the country. And I think folks have to remember California is the state that brought you Richard Nixon. It's the state that brought you Ronald Reagan. It's the state that brought you Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's the state that currently is bringing you Nutty McNutt. Kevin McCarthy. Okay. So like we, 
we, you That's know, we, we, <laughs> yeah, nuts. man, like, I mean, these people are, are like deeply problematic kinds of folks and we have them right here and they are, they're currently, I would argue, uh, winning the debate. Like, I guess they're not winning from the standpoint of like the policy around ethnic studies still is on the books. But their pushback has gained incredible strength and complicity from the liberal, the nice liberals, uh, the nice blue liberals in charge of this place. And we, you know, it is, it's problematic and maybe it's a good transition here, Manuel. It is, um, it's also setting teachers up for some very complex, um, you know, sort of legal questions and professional questions and ethical questions that need clarification um, as as the folks who are actually implementing this in the classroom. Yeah, for sure. So as a classroom teacher and as a co-host here, knowing that we have a lot of classroom teachers who tune in at at some point, you, one has the question like, okay, so the state kind of wants me to do this, I guess, but then my my school board is saying do that, and you know, where who do I listen to as a teacher? And you know, of course, not our entire audience is in California. And generally speaking, all of the above, we discuss issues that are uh, just across the whole nation and stories from all over the place. The last two passing periods last week and in this one, um, you know, we're talking about California quite a bit. And I think it's important conversation to have uh, for folks who aren't in California to listen to, um, partly just to remind people that California is not this uh, fully liberal blue haven for everybody. Um, It's far from that, in fact. And just like we like to remind people that in Florida, like there's there's many, many communities and many educators in Florida that are not with the the BS that's coming on down from uh, DeSantis and, and his his folks. And it's important to remember, you know, Florida and Floridians are not a monolithic group that are all on board for for the wildness that's going on there. In California, California is not the, you know, anti-Florida. We're not the, the you know, negative reflection of, of Florida or whatever, you know, that term would be. We're very much like Florida in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, we have big, relatively blue metropolitan areas that themselves have pockets of bigotry and prejudice and um, all kinds of all kinds of hate. And then we have wide ranging red areas, wide ranging across the state that are very much the uh, Kevin McCarthy type uh, mindset. So uh, this story here, you know, there's a few districts. Actually, I think we're up to six districts now. I think the uh, Orange Unified School District just became the sixth district in California to have a school board that passed a... um, uh, policy about parental notification when a student identifies as trans. So, uh, Jeff, let's let's talk a bit about what about those classroom teachers in in this case in California who know that there's state law about your your uh, responsibilities for notifying or not notifying parents when you have a student who identifies as trans, and then there's state uh there's sorry local school board policy that's telling you to do the opposite so if you're a teacher who just wants to be able to 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 run a humanizing classroom where students of all backgrounds get to see their own 
beauty and brilliance and uh, build together and learn together. And your school board is telling you to out your trans students and your state is telling you, no, don't out your trans students. What do you as a teacher, like, what are you supposed to do? Like legally, what what's the deal there? So, Jeff, um, I think we're going to talk about a particular story from from Ed Source, from our good uh, friends at Ed Source that kind of introduces this conversation about what are those what about those classroom teachers who are caught between this rock and a hard place one rock being bigotry the hard place being a state that sometimes waffles on things <laughs> yeah exactly uh okay so excellent framing manuel we're gonna we're gonna dig into this discussion through the lens of uh, an article that uh, came out in EdSource a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, it's written by Diana Lambert, and it's entitled, Can Teachers Be Legally Liable If District Policy Requires They Break the Law? And of course, this is centering, as you said, around these this growing number of districts with right-wing school boards that are putting in place uh, conservative, harmful laws that force educators to out trans or gender nonconforming students uh, to to their parents. Um, now, you might say, uh, and, and this is, of course, the allure of these kinds of policies, is they're rooted in this uh, this version of parental rights that, of course, has a surface that sounds like, well, how could you disagree with that? That parents have a right to know what's going on with their kids. Um, but of course, it's being weaponized in this case to to suppress and oppress a community of students who we know are highly, highly marginalized and at risk in our in our society because uh, outing them in particular uh, has direct results, negative health outcomes, mental health, physical health, risk of suicide, um, and that in many cases, these are students who might be seeking counsel from an educator at school precisely because they're unsure of the safety of doing so at home. Right. And whether that safety is about a threat of physical violence, whether that safety is, is about will I be kicked out of the home and be displaced and, you know, and that sort of thing had to become homeless or a ward of the state or other sorts of, you know, extreme, very destabilizing things that also have their own negative mental health and physical health outcomes. Um, and it is. You know, attempting to lay on top of that what we know will be a negative set of outcomes for the kids, this, you know, warm blanket of parental rights and parents know what's best and this kind of thing, which uh, is devious and duplicitous and, you know, and deceptive intentionally so. Uh, but this is, you know, this is the nature of extreme right wing arguments. Right. Um, and so. The article, uh, Manuel, sort of breaks uh, breaks down this issue in a little more of a technical sense, right? So many folks might have heard about the, the Chino Valley decision from a few weeks back where the state superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurman, was sort of shouted out of a school board meeting where he was coming to speak about it there. Um, and since then, the California Attorney General, um, Rob Bonta, um, has, you know, taken some 
um, minor steps, I guess you could say, um, warned that um, the parental notification policies could violate the state's anti-discrimination laws and students' right to privacy guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution and the California Constitution, um, as well as protections under federal Title IX and the state education code. So Bonta has since launched a civil rights investigation into that school district. Um, there is, you know, was a previous letter cautioning that outing students could result in emotional, mental, and physical harm uh, to the students and subject them to discriminatory harassment. So, you know, there's maybe some some work being done right now. I, I don't mean to say that to be dismissive. I just mean like this certainly is not an aggressive use of state legal power to challenge, nor is it nor is there really any effort that I can see coming from the, the federal level at these things, despite there being ample opportunity to do so. But what we're seeing is a very slow reactionary response from, from state and federal authorities right now that, that uh, hopefully will be ramped up. But in the meanwhile, teachers, as you said, are in the rock and the hard place. Um, so, for example, teachers could potentially be found liable or sued as a result of enforcing these policies or not enforcing <laughs> these policies. Um, or they could find themselves caught up in the lawsuits allegations, even if they aren't a defendant. Um, now, this was a statement that came from Laura Geron, uh, chief counsel for the California Teachers Association. Um, so this, this is a, a frustrating and dangerous place to be put if you are a teacher. Um, and it is a totally unnecessary place to be put if you are a teacher. Uh, you know, this is one of those things, man. Well, that's probably going to be fine. It's going to be a non-issue until it's a huge issue, right? Until a student commits suicide. And the investigation, you know, shows that, like, they confided, you know, something to a teacher who didn't report it to the family or maybe reported only part of it to the family or, so, you know, something of that nature. Right. Or, um, you know, that they a student commits suicide because they did report something to a teacher and report the teacher reported it fully to the family. The family did a bunch of harmful stuff with the kid. And now, you know, the kid is, you know, is no longer with us and we're trying to figure out where to point blame, you know, or these sorts of things. So this is this is like tragic and unnecessarily tragic uh, right now. And I also think, man, well, there's a very clear moral right answer to this one. There just is. I know our, you know, conservative Christian and otherwise conservative, socially conservative folks uh, out there would disagree. They would probably say the opposite. And I feel very confident, Manuel, in just saying, like, they're wrong. The Like, these two positions, one of them upholds the dignity and the humanity of the children. The other does not. And so it's not the right position. And, you know, like, I, I feel okay about saying that. I don't feel, I know that it's, you know, there's always risk in feeling very certain that you are right about something, especially when that something is, is a complex issue. But I don't know, man. Well, I feel okay being like, we're right. <laughs> I don't want to speak for you. I feel all right being like, I'm right about this issue. Like, you know, this is just not actually as complicated as they're making it. Um, and one path here leads to depression, anxiety, absence from school, homelessness, suicide, 
habitual drug use, all kind, you know, um, engaging yeah. in high risk sex, uh, you know, sex trafficking and these sorts of things. Uh, not, not trafficking necessarily, but like, you know, prostitution and sex work because that's only means of supporting oneself, you know, like the, it, it results in those kinds of things. And the other one results in like, a warm, affirming place at school where you can explore something about yourself with like a little bit of confidentiality while you figure it out, you know? And like, <laughs> those yeah. are not equal. <laughs> this is not like two sides, you know? Yeah, it's really not, but it certainly looks like it visually when you see scenes at these school board meetings across California where such policies have been adopted and you see it's really it's real like when you look at the the folks who show up in support of these policies and who want like you know so-called parental rights and this and that I just gotta say that you look at the photos and it's real January 6 vibes man I don't know what it mm. is it's just real mm. January 6 vibes with the the anger the aggression the American flags the it's just it's the those are the vibes and it's just like Anyways, um, so just to, you know, touch on a, a few things that you said there, um, according to the Trevor Project, so just to, you know, put some numbers here for uh, the real risk that is run when um, trans kids are outed and just the, you know, just the the, the mental health implications of um, identifying as LGBTQ in a time of all of these so-called culture wars. Um, so the Trevor Project uh, released information about their uh, from their 2023 U.S. National Survey on the mental health of LGBTQ young people. And uh, they surveyed and um, reached out to, it looks like they got responses from 28,000, 28,000 uh, queer youth between the ages of 13 and 24. And some of the findings one, one of them that really stuck out to me was that in terms of um, LGBTQ youth who feel that their home, that their home is affirming to their gender identity and sexual orientation, only 38% said that their home was LGBTQ affirming, which means 62% of, of queer youth live in a household where they feel that the household does not affirm their identity, 62%. So these policies are basically, basically saying like, yeah, those 62%, damn that, we don't care if it's, if their home life is affirming or not, we're gonna force teachers to make the call, send the notification, make the report, whatever, to let that non-affirming home know that, um, that their young person uh, identifies, in this case as trans. And um, some other results from that finding, 41%, 41% of LGBTQ young people seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year, not ever, just, just within the past year, 41%. So these are real serious dangers here with regards to the role of a teacher in um, perhaps, perhaps um, setting a young person up for harm at home, which super contradicts everything we're taught as a teacher where we're supposed to be the mandated reporter that's supposed to protect young people and not let them uh go harm to go home to a harmful environment these policies are basically saying forget what that environment might be like forget what the dangers might be forget what the numbers are you gotta as a teacher go ahead and report this kid and that's just so i just feel so bad i feel so bad for these kids man because I mean, the life life is already hard enough, obviously, um, for these young people, period. And then to add the added element that like your teacher might have to say something, might have to report something. If you write something in, in an assignment or a warm up or or you mention anything like that, the teacher might have to out you. 
And then you think about, Jeff, we talked about this a lot with policies like this, not just the uh, these policies, but just general anti-human legislation and policies that we've seen sweeping across the nation, that it's not even so much about the policy itself, but the, the so-called chilling effect that it has. And in this case, I'm thinking about the other kids in the classrooms, in the school campuses, who themselves might be um, very transphobic or be in transphobic households. And I could just picture some of those kids really targeting, really targeting uh, trans and non-binary youth and saying, like, you know, just making comments like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, did you tell, uh, you know, Sarah's parents yet about her gender, this and that? Like, I could just see this giving cover to some of that transphobia and that bigotry um, to, to like, to just be okay and be normalized across a campus. Because if you are a young person who has, um, who's been raised with, um, prejudice and, and bigoted thoughts about people's sexuality and gender identity, and you know, like, oh, your teachers now have to report a kid, then bam, man, you might be making a scene about that. And it just makes it harder for those kids. It's just a green light for these, for uh, for campuses and teachers, of course, and other adults, but also for the kids at those schools to, to up the amount of targeting that is already directed at trans kids. So I just feel so bad for these kids. And um, as a teacher, of course, like my loyalties to the young person, man, like straight up, that's, that's my loyalty. And I think any teacher in these school districts, I get it. Like the legal implications and ramifications are very real and very serious. It just seems like common sense to me that like, state law is like you got to follow state law forget what your wonky school board uh says so like the state is like yo do not out these kids man we got you know we got some um some guidance for you to follow and just so you know like we are not good with that like we do not allow that listen to the state listen to the state like basic uh you know federalism 101 man like just because you got some little wonky little local thing doesn't mean you could violate what the state says and you know you know, going on up. So yeah, man, I don't know. And the four teachers in this case, it looks like, um, at least one of the school districts, I think it was Chino when asked about like, what would be the consequence of a teacher not following the policy? Uh, they were talking about progressive discipline, which includes, um, verbal warnings and then a letter of a warning and meetings with supervisors and letters of reprimand, um, on up to eventually being dismissed if you don't follow these policies. So that's, you know, for a lot, for teachers, especially young teachers, especially ones who, you know, don't have tenure yet and, and could really be let go pretty quickly and easily. That's a tough spot to be in because if you're if you're in high school, for example, so my students have eight classes and that's seven other teachers that they might have depending on double block situations. So if I were if my district had one of these policies, which it doesn't, thankfully, and um you know, there's all these different teachers who knew that so and so is non-binary or so and so identifies uh as trans, like if one teacher reports it and the other ones didn't, like, do I get a letter? Cause I didn't report it and I was supposed to. And I don't know, man, it's just such a, who the hell wants to work within a situation like that? These districts sound like awful places to work, period. Like I could imagine like, you know, uh, I think Chino Valley also has some policy about like displaying flags in a classroom and you can't display any flag besides the good old, you know, stars and stripes and, and what have you. And it's just like, um, these sound like awful places to work if you care about humanity and you care about the um, wonderful beauty and diversity and brilliance of your young people and being affirming towards that. Damn, man, like this is, um, this is not good, Jeff. 
This is not good. Nah, it's uh, it's it's no bueno officially. Um, there is there is a, a piece here, Manuel, that I I am um, I'm frustrated by with regard to the the state legal authority, and it it is it rings to me very familiar from a historical perspective, right? Um, to the, the, you know, the earlier days of the civil rights movement uh, in this country, the movement for, you know, black freedom in particular, but certainly other communities have, uh, have used similar strategies where by the, you know, the legal governmental powers that be use that power to do intentional harm to communities and where there is no legal resource, like you can't call the cops and get any help from them. You can't sue and go to a court and get any help from them. The governor ain't coming to do anything good and neither is the president, you know? And so the question from a, from a social movement perspective then becomes like, if we have no recourse through the, through government, like what do we do? And these are very, da- like these are revolutionary conditions, right? Um, because what we are seeing is, and I'm sure they have a good, like, sort of procedural legal reason for doing this that, that probably rests on something like civil rights departments are reactive by nature, right? Like people bring claims to them of some harm done and then they go investigate and they issue injunctions and, you know, or, you know, get a judge to issue injunctions or they, you know, they engage in, in consent decrees and these kinds of things. But they could be proactive if they wanted to. That is a choice that doesn't have to, like, we don't have to wait to see the harm that these laws are going to do before issuing policies, directives, you know, other kinds of things that says like, actually, you're going to do harm with this. And if you do, here will be some consequences that you will face. Right. Um, the state, as you said, has su- superior legal authority to govern, uh, you know, educational policy. And um, and we don't have to wait Right. We don't have to wait. So I my real sincere hope is that we start to see more proactive action from the from the legal, you know, attorney generals, the governors, etc. I'm not holding my breath, but this is a great opportunity where they could do this if they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. And they are, I think, um on this particular issue, the state certainly seems to be a little more forthright than it's being on its on the ethnic studies conversation that we had earlier um, with regards to these school boards, these conservative majority school boards and the shenanigans that they're trying to pull. Uh, recently, the uh, state legislature passed um, Assembly Bill 1070, which basically expands and adds a little bit of teeth to the FAIR Act, which in California, um, way back when, it's been like over a decade now, um, started requiring instructional materials to portray the diversity and the viewpoints and experiences of um, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups and and very importantly including LGBTQ plus Californians so you know some tea to that after Temecula tried to pull that whole like we're not going to allow this book because it's got Harvey Milk in there so now you know school boards can't school boards that try to refuse to uh, ban books or remove things from their libraries uh, there's all these new mechanisms in place to um, to uh, help the county 
county offices of ed in the state um, respond to that and and do right. And yeah, we have you know some some you know right now the judge uh, one judge has blocked the Chino um, Hills. Chino Hills or Chino Valley? Chino Valley. Chino, I Chino get, Valley. Yeah, yeah. no, nah, I'd be getting them mixed up because anyways, uh, Chino Valley uh, School District from upholding their policy. So like, you know, things are happening, but but yeah, you're right. And especially if you're a teacher right now. And also, also actually, no, let me take it back. Let me say, yeah, things are happening, but it almost in certain ways doesn't even matter anymore because just like we see in other states, like once it's out there that this is the environment, this is the environment that we would like to create in our school district. We would like to create a um, outwardly, overtly anti-trans environment on our campuses. Whether a judge suspends the policy or not, that environment is there and that environment starts to starts to blossom. And like I said, kids start to um, feel a little more um, comfort in being uh, openly anti-trans and bullying and uh, attacking kids and, and doing all that. And teachers start to hesitate a little bit more when it comes to supporting their trans youth because like maybe they're not exactly clear on what the latest ruling or suspension uh, means. So um, that chilling effect, which is a term we use a lot. And I feel like I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing the term because I feel like it's um it's more than that. But I don't have like I don't I don't have a the language to go beyond that. But that that chilling effect is is in place. And that is. Oh, man, again, I just feel so bad for these kids, man. Just want to go to school, get an education, not be bothered by nobody, not be harmed. And I just want to be myself. And not feel like by the time I get home, my parents have received a phone call or email from my teacher. And now I got to deal with that. Man, it's just uh, so tragic that we're here in 2023. And again, not to belabor this point, but we're talking California here, California. So just like um, some really good dope Florida educators keep telling us, stop talking about Florida like we're all on that uh, racist white supremacist tip. Stop lumping us all together. Same goes for California. Stop talking about California like it's this uh, wonderland where we don't that Florida stuff. We don't stand for that here. Nah, California definitely stands for that Florida stuff in pockets and then in quieter ways uh, statewide with uh, the waffling on ethnic studies, for example. So not great stuff, Jeff. And I hate to end on like a kind of depressing kind of note there, man. We need something uplifting. What you got, you know, Jeff? I, well, I, you know, that's a tough question in the in the moment. I, what, <laughs> I, what I will say, Manuel, is our our charge is to shed light on the on the dark corners of uh, the education landscape where where light need be shown. And that tends yeah. to be on things where, you know, uh, our our right wing adversaries are are doing dirt, man, and, and organizing power to do harmful things in ways that, that we should collectively oppose. And so uh, so I think it's OK for us to talk about that. You know, it, it's important that we also have joy in our in our lives. And I'm just going to say, Manuel, I know we don't want to give uh, previews about upcoming guests, but I'm just going to I'm just going to say we have a guest booked 
been booked for some time. <laughs> this guest <laughs> has been very good to us in the past. Reappearing on the show uh, will will be quite wonderful. But this guest is also an extremely busy uh, individual. And so we are quite hopeful that we will have a guest on who we can talk deeply with about joy and what it means in learning uh, and, and in school. Uh, later this week to bring you our next full episode. Uh, it'll, it will, it will be, if all goes well, a couple weeks from now that that, uh, that episode would actually come out. But I tell you, it's, it's going to be a good one provided <laughs> the scheduling gods work out. It's going to be a good one. And, uh, we will, we will be bringing some, some deep, profound conversation about joy in school, uh, to, to all of our listeners and viewers. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's that's a tease there, Jeff. That's that is a, a tease. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I'm with it. I know I'll be staying tuned. And I know our AOTA family that's been with us for a minute will continue to stay tuned. If this was your first listen to all of the above, shout out to you and uh, thank you for joining us. We hope that you consider subscribing and perhaps consider leaving a uh, five star or a thumbs up or something like that. And definitely um, tune in next week. Next week, we'll have another passing period. But like Jeff said, we are recording with some uh, with with a guest. And then we got another one after that. And, you know, with those full episodes, which feature our super dope guest, of course, and, and multiple headlines and other dope things and video format and all that. Uh, those are on the way. For sure, those are on the way. But thank you all for joining us here. Uh, we very much appreciate y'all. We do want to remind y'all that we in this together and um, just every little bit of love and support that you share. And that could even be something as small as recommending this show to somebody else in your um, educator circle. Or they don't even have to be educators, actually. That goes a long way. Uh, so, you know, shout out for all of y'all who have been continuing to do that. So I believe that is all for this week's passing period. We hope everybody has a full and wonderful um, week of schooling or teaching or administering or whatever it is you may do in your professional space. And uh, just remember, we love y'all. And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class. <laughs> <laughs>